We are continuing a series that we started last week called Renewed. And it's talking about practices that we can have in our lives to have a, a fresh, renewed lifestyle. Last week, we began with talking about a renewed spirit and how sin can dampen that spirit within us. We're more than just bones and flesh. We are a spirit living. God breathed into us the spirit of life, and we became living, living, living beings. And because we are living beings, we have a spirit that is eternal, and it needs to be renewed and refreshed regularly. Today, we continue that series. We're talking about, here on Valentine's Day, a renewed love. There was a guy talking to his friend on Valentine's Day recently, and he, he said, it was two years ago today that I asked the girl of my dreams out on a date. He said, oh, man, that's great. He said, yeah, and, and today I asked her to marry me. He said, great. He said, not really. She said no both times. <laughs> Love is a curious thing, isn't it? It's, it's not always simple and clear and clean cut. And we have so many definitions of love. And today we're going to be focusing on the kind of renewal of our love for God that God wants us to have so that we can have that abundant, renewed, refreshing life that God wants us to have. When we love something, we are eager to let other people know, right? We are eager to let them know what we really are passionate about. Just look at how people who love a particular sports team will invest in that. They'll buy tickets at exorbitant prices to go to games. They will reschedule everything in their lives to be able to be there. And then some will go even further than that. They'll, they'll paint their faces and maybe sometimes their whole bodies and, and buy all this attire that they will wear uh, and to be there to support their team. And some people even do that at home, even if they can't be at the game. That's pretty, pretty passionate, isn't it? But we don't just do it for sports teams. When we really love something, you show it. It shows to other people. So I want to do a little survey because people love different things. Whether you're online listening or you're in person at either campus, I want you to raise your hand uh, if you love this because there are kind of some competing things here, okay? How many of you are cat lovers? Raise your hand. All right, we've got a few cat lovers here. But some people, how many of you are dog lovers? Raise your hand. Yeah, a lot of, in fact, in the room here where I am, it's about half and half there with cat lovers and dog lovers. Some of you raised your hand twice. That doesn't count. I'm not even counting that, okay? I know you love cats and dogs. That's okay, all right? How about this? How many of you love pizza? Raise your hand. Keep your hand up for just a minute for the next question. How many of you love pizza with pineapple on it? Well, a lot of hands went down there, but a lot of them stayed up. I'm one of those guys that loves the, the pizza with the pineapple on it. I like that. I like that combination. But some people think that's uh, an insult to pizza, right? How about this one? How many of you love warm weather and the beach? Raise your hand. A lot of hands up there. How many of you love the cooler temperatures in the mountains? Uh, about half and half on that one, too. How many of you love, you got to have it, first thing in the morning, coffee? Oh, yeah, a lot of coffee lovers, but I see a lot of hands not up there, okay? I'm not one. I used to drink coffee every morning. Now, for me, how many of you love tea in the morning? 
Well, I've got some hands up for that. I'm one of those people. I love to have a hot cup of tea in the morning. In fact, I have one up here on stage with me right now, back in the back that I sip on between services. I, I love hot tea. My point is this. We don't all agree on the things that we love. But what I want us to focus on today is something I think we can agree on is that God is worthy of our love, our affection, our devotion. He's worthy for us to be passionate about him and the things of his kingdom. And we ought to be eager if we love God to share that love with others. Both why we love God and how much God loves them. They need to know about that. And, and if we really love God, we'll be passionate about doing both of those things. Loving him is connected to loving others the way God loves others. So today we're going to look at three things about this love that God wants to renew in us. The first thing about it I've already alluded to is this. When you love, it is obvious. When you really love, it is obvious. When we say we love God, it should be obvious by the way that we live, the way that we act, the things that we say and how we say them. It should be obvious that we are people who love God. It should be in our actions. And people should be able to tell it without any problem at all. See, when we have love for God in the right proper perspective as, a, as the top priority of our lives, then it permeates every other part of our lives. It permeates our relationship life. It permeates our work life. It permeates our recreational life. Every part of our life is permeated by and, and, and really motivated by our love for God, even, the, even our money, how we handle that. All of that is led by our love for God. And when we love God well, it rolls over into loving other people well. Kyle Eidelman is the author of a book, Not a Fan. It was developed into a Bible study as well, and it's a great Bible study. Some at our church, some of our life groups have done this study. And in, in the book, Not a Fan, he says this, we love others best when we love God most. I think that's true. When we love God most, it's the top priority of our lives. Uh, some people say, well, well, I want to put my wife first. Or I want to put my husband first. Here, here's the thing. If you put God first, you love your spouse better. You love your children better. You love your friends better. You love total strangers better when you love God first. That's the top priority of our lives. That's because we are designed to have all of our lives flow from our relationship to God. Too often we look for validation and fulfillment. We look for love in the wrong places. We want it to, to fill us up. We want it to make us happy. We want it, and we go to, to sources that are less than God to get that love that really only God can provide. I've said this many times. One of the greatest problems in marriages is we're asking our spouse to do something for us that only God can do for us. We're asking our spouse to, you know, like the romantic phrase, you complete me, Right? Oh, that sounds so romantic, doesn't it? And it is romantic on a certain level. We do have people that, that really add value to our lives and some that don't necessarily add a lot of value to our lives. And, 
And and we know that, we sense that, we feel that. But here's the problem. No spouse can complete you if you don't have the love of God first. You see, God's love is what truly completes us as human beings. We are made for, created by God for a relationship with Him. And if we don't have that relationship in place like we need to, then we'll never be completed by anybody else in any other relationship. We won't. It will always come short, and, and it can create tension and, and anger and disappointment in the spouse or in the friend that's not doing that for us, and they can't. They can't. And so we've got to get back to this, this understanding that it's our love for God and God's love for us that truly completes us and makes us whole. And when we put God first... That's what makes every other relationship better. Here's the other side of that. When we don't put God first, here's what we end up doing. Almost always we put ourselves first if we don't put God first. We put ourselves first. We, we start wanting everything to be done to complete us, to fulfill us, to make us happy, to satisfy us. It's all about us if we don't make our love for God the highest priority. And when you act selfishly in any relationships, it, it hurts the relationship. So getting this renewal of our love for God is important. It's vital if we want any of our other relationships to be what they're supposed to be, what they're created to be and designed to be. We've got to get this one right. We've got to renew this love for God. Uh, a lot of you are familiar with the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. It's, it's a book that it, a lot of it is looking forward to. Uh, a lot of people look at end times there and what's going on in end times, and it, it does include that. But, but earlier on in the book, in the first few chapters, there's a, mes- a message to the churches, uh, to seven churches. And those messages, because they are messages that are supposed to be looking forward to, to the last age of the earth, those messages are true for us too. And it's a disclosure of, of how God's people can best prepare for the last days. And in that list of seven churches and the messages there, there's a message to the church at Ephesus. And that message to the church at Ephesus, like the others, should serve as an instructional message to us today. And to all who would want to follow Jesus, that we should listen to this message and take heed to this message. In chapter 2 of Revelation, it begins with praise for the church at Ephesus. It it talks about really good things that they're doing at that church. Uh, It talks about their their deeds, their hard work, their, their perseverance, their praise for identifying and exposing false teachers. That's a great thing to say about a church. They're protecting the teaching of the truth there. But after all that praise, there's one issue that God has for the church. It's in Revelation 2 and verse 4. Here's what he says to the church at Ephesus. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. How's that possible? They're working hard for God. They're really active in their service. They're they're outwardly doing all these good things. How is it possible that they have not stayed faithful and true to the love they had for God at the beginning? You see, that's a warning for all of us who are Christ followers. It's possible 
to outwardly be doing the right things and inwardly not be right in your heart with God. We see it all the time. I was so saddened this past week to read of Ravi Zacharias and what came out on his life. I had always admired him as a Christian apologist. He did such a great job presenting the arguments for the faith, uh, exposing the, the faulty arguments against Christianity. He, he was so good at that. But it now comes out that in his personal life, he was involved in sexual immorality on a regular basis. How can you do all the right things on the outside and be so good at it and still be living that kind of life secretly in the background? I don't think Ravi Zacharias started out doing those things. I think he had such a great love for Christ that led him into Christian apologetics, but somewhere along the way he lost his first love, his passion to love God first and best so that other relationships would be what they should have been in his life. You see, if it could happen to him, and we have this warning to the church at Ephesus, friends, it's something we have to guard against. Every one of us have to guard against losing this love for God, this passion for God. They neglected that original passion at the church at Ephesus that they had started out with for Christ. The reason I believe that's so important for us today is I've seen it happen in the church, generally speaking, in America especially. Early on, as our country was formed and began to grow, many people came to this land with the intent of having freedom of religion and, and spreading the good news of the gospel and bringing people to Christ, converting them to Christianity. There were a lot of people who came here with that motive. And so early on in the life of our country, evangelism, sharing the good news, bringing people to Jesus, that was a passion of so many people. And it was growing the church in America in great ways. And the church in America became strong. In fact, the United States became the stronghold for Christianity in the world. But somewhere along the way, we stopped holding on to our first love. And we started replacing it with other causes and other things. Most recently, I've seen it happen with politics, and it saddens me so much. People who wear the name of Jesus are more passionate about their political party or their political candidate or convincing people they're wrong and they're right than they are about bringing people to Jesus. And it's so sad to witness I've said it a few weeks ago, but I want to repeat this. Listen to me. If we want this to be a Christian nation, whatever you want to define that as, a nation with a Christian culture, you don't do that politically. You do that by fulfilling your mission. You do that by making disciples of Jesus Christ. That's how you do it. The more people you bring to Jesus, the more the Christian culture will permeate our society. The more people following Jesus as Lord, the more we'll have a Christian culture in our communities. The church's job was to make disciples, not to make presidents or senators or congresspeople. That's not the church's job. Now, should we be involved politically? Yes, but it should never be our first love. It should never take the place of love for God as the top priority of our lives, loving God and loving others ever. 
Christians should vote. They should be involved. But they should not make that their highest passion. And yet I see people who will sacrifice more and give more and support more their political candidate than they ever have the church of Jesus Christ. It's time we get back and renew our first love. Our love for Jesus should be first. The other part that's happened recently, and I, again, I don't mean we shouldn't be involved in this, is social justice. I, I very much want social justice to be done. I, I want to see that happen. I, I, think, I think there are things that still need to be corrected and made right, obviously. But here's the problem. So many people have made that their number one passion that it's not love for God that's driving what they're doing. It's not love for God and love for others that's controlling their decisions and their actions. And that's why they can be violent sometimes. That's why they can, can riot and burn places down who, who had nothing to do with what they're, what they're upset about. That's, that's why it can get so out of control. So now not everybody does that, but when you let it get to be the most driving force of your life, you can get into things that God would not be pleased with in the name of these good causes that you say you believe in. When loving God and loving others should be the number one passion. There are other worthy causes that we get connected to and involved in, and that's great. Uh, I'm opposed to human trafficking. I, I very much want to stop human trafficking. I think it's a plague on our culture. But I can't let my passion for that issue override my love for God and my love for others. My work in that area should be driven by my love for God and my love for others. That's what should control my passion in that area, whether it's any other cause, abortion, or whatever it is that you have as a cause, the driving force should be, I love God and I love others. That's what should determine how I speak about this and how I interact with people about this. For some people, replacing love for God comes in the form of putting relationships ahead of God. I, I'm going, I'm so much in love with this person and I so much want to have this relationship with this person that I will compromise God's word and God's teachings to make sure I have that relationship and to keep that relationship with that person. I don't mind getting outside the will of God to do it. And that's why people who wear the name of Christ all over our country today are perfectly okay with sex outside of marriage and living together outside of marriage. It's because their relationship status takes more importance in their lives than their love for God and His Word and His teaching. That's why. And that's why we don't mind crossing the lines when it comes to gender identity and stuff like that. It's because our love for God is not the highest priority. It's the relationships that we want to have. Keeping them like we want them to be. You see, when God says to the church at Ephesus, you've forsaken your first love, he could look at the church in America and say, oh, for many of you, you have forsaken your first love. One other area in America that this became prevalent early on in the life of our country is the pursuit of wealth. In the name of the pursuit of wealth and prosperity and the American dream, we will compromise our relationship with God. So we could get a little more money, have more than new stuff that we want to have. We'll neglect the things of God to get those things, to have that wealth, to have the power and the influence that comes with it. We'll neglect the things of God. And so we want to start by understanding that the most important thing for us 
if we want to have a renewed life is that we renew our love for God. And it should be so obvious in politics and in social justice issues and any other worthy cause and in our relationships and in our workplace and handling our money, all of it, it should be obvious in all of those areas that love for God comes first above everything else. And love for God always is connected to love for people, love for others. Here's the second thing about this love that we want to see today, and that is when you love, you don't neglect that that you say you love. You don't neglect who or what you say you love. A relationship to God is very similar to marriage. In fact, the church is called the bride of Christ. That's one of the analogies that's used in Scripture. Here's the thing about a marriage. Uh, Sue Ann and I, uh, my beautiful bride, we've been married over 40 years, and I love her so much, and she loves me. But, but you know what it's like when you first get married? It's all excitement and romance, and it's so much fun, and you just it's great. And sometimes that lasts a year. Sometimes it lasts a couple of years. Sometimes, you, know, you know, that excitement and that newness to it and all that is so, so wonderful, and I don't want to take anything away from that. That's a great thing. But here's the thing about a marriage. If you only do the right things while it's fresh and exciting and you stop doing them after you lose the freshness of it and the excitement of the newness of it, you start neglecting the relationship because it's just not as exciting as it was at first. It won't be long before that relationship is in serious trouble. It won't be long before you start having all kinds of difficulties in that relationship. Our couple that retains a deep love for one another is a couple who has healthy practices that they keep doing even after the newness has worn off. One example, and I, I didn't come up with this. We, Sue Ann and I thankfully had some people who poured into us in our young marriage, and they taught us this. They said, whatever you do, always keep a date night in your marriage. Keep it on the calendar. And very early on in our marriage, we set a night that was our date night, and we put it on our calendars. And if somebody called and asked us to do something else that was a non-emergency thing, we always said, I can't do it then. I have another appointment already. We would keep that appointment as the higher priority. And as a pastor, you know, I'm on call all the time, so I'd get calls all the time. And I can honestly say, though, I looked on my calendar, I've got an appointment already that night. It's an appointment with my wife. Because here's what I know about being a pastor. I can never be the pastor I ought to be if I don't have the marriage I ought to have. I can't. It will never work. i got to keep that a priority. But you can't ever be the Christ follower you need to be if you're married and you don't keep your marriage intact. You don't keep investing in it, doing those things that make the marriage special. And it can be different things, whatever works well that your partner likes in your marriage. Who, your spouse, you know they love it. When you, I, I do something for Sue, and she does things for me all the time. One of the things I do for her, I still do it, is I open the car door for her every time we get in the car. I always go around and open the car door for her. And I'm not saying that to brag on me. I'm saying that to, to help you understand, that's a little thing. And Sue Ann would not divorce me if I didn't open the car door for her today. I don't think. Haven't tried it. But I'm pretty sure she wouldn't divorce me if I didn't do that. But it would just be one more little thing that becomes obvious to her. All of a sudden, that, that's not as important to me to do something like that that I know she likes. 
and you add another one to that and another one to that that you just stop doing in your relationship with each other, and slowly and surely the relationship feels neglected now. And any relationship that's neglected never stays healthy very long, ever. You have to consistently make the effort, the investment in the relationship, whether it's marriage or friendship or any relationship that you have. It is that consistent investment in the relationship that keeps it strong. And the same thing is true in our relationship with God. Of all the disciples in the New Testament, I love one uh, that I identify with, I think, uh, more than any other. It's Peter. I love Peter because he, he tends, to, I think, as I read scripture and I read commentary about his life, I think he tended to have the, the, the kind of personality, some of the personality traits that I have. He seemed to be a, a guy that liked to forge ahead, liked to charge ahead quickly, and I tend to have that personality too. If I think something's a good idea, I just kind of charge into it. I don't always stop and pull back and go through all the preparation I need to, and I've had to learn that the hard way so many times, and, and I'm working on it, and I think I do better at it now, but I still, my natural inclination is just to respond quickly and, and try to fix it or do it or get the job done right away with, without all the planning and preparation. Well, I think Peter was impetuous that way, and we see examples of it all the way through Scripture. And one of the things we see in Peter's life was his passion. Uh, I think those two things often go together. When you're passionate about something, you just want to go ahead, you want to get it done, you want to charge in full speed. And I think Peter was passionate about Jesus and about his love for Jesus. But I also think even people with passion on the front end have this tendency sometimes to, to not maintain the relationship properly. In Luke chapter 22, we have an account near the end of Jesus' ministry. And in this account, uh, Jesus is with his disciples. He, they've gone to the upper room the night that he was going to be betrayed and turn over, be turned over to his enemies. This is in the upper room where Jesus washes their feet. This is where he institutes the, what we know as communion or the Lord's Supper. It's that night in the upper room. And after that time in the upper room, they go out into the garden that same night, right after having that time together in the upper room. Jesus had said something about Peter to Peter that Peter was really upset about. You know what it was probably. Jesus told Peter, before the rooster crowed three times, what was Peter going to do? Deny him. He said, in fact, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Deny me three times. Now, Peter, remember, if you look back through the gospel account of, of Peter and Jesus, Peter is always defending Jesus. Peter is always charging ahead. Peter is always vocal about his love for Jesus. When, when we have the people who come forward to accept Christ as Savior, we often ask them to repeat a profession of faith. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We well, you know who we got it from? Peter. He was the first one to charge out and speak out with that confession of his faith. This is Peter who is so strong, right? And yet Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And I'm sure it was weighing on Peter. So when the, they go out to the garden, they, the crowd comes out to arrest Jesus. You know? When they come out to arrest Jesus, it says that one of the disciples, a couple of the Gospels say one of the disciples, pulls out his sword and cuts off the servant of the high priest's ear. But one of the gospel accounts tells us which disciple that was. Guess who it was? 
is Peter, charging ahead, right? Passionate about Jesus, wanting to defend Jesus, right? It's almost like he's proving to Jesus, uh-uh, not me. I'm not going to be anybody that would deny you. I'm going to defend you to the death. It's almost like, because he said, I'd die for you, Jesus. And here he is doing something that he could be executed for. But Jesus says, oh, put your sword away. And he took the ear and he healed the servant's ear right there. But then after Jesus is taken and led away, let's pick up in Luke 22 and verse 54. It says, then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter, what did he do? He followed at a distance. When someone there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But what did he do? Verse 57, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also were one of them. Man, I'm not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow with him, it was with him, for he's a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the words the Lord had spoken to him, before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. He went outside and wept bitterly. Man, how crushing this must have been for Peter. But Jesus too, think about that. I mean, he's warned Peter in advance. He's given him preparation time. But when it came down to it, he denied him just like Jesus said he would. And when they were questioning Jesus, it says in the gospel accounts, they moved him from one place to another. So as he was being across, moved across the courtyard to another location, that's when Peter denied him the third time. And that's when Peter looked up and Jesus was looking right at him. Can you imagine how that felt for both of them? Peter had sworn, I'll die for you, Jesus. And here he is denying that he even has any connection to him at all. How can it happen? I'll tell you how it can happen. You lose your first love. You let other things take priority over your first love. You see, for, Jesus to, for Peter to admit his connection to Jesus right then would have put himself at great risk. When you lose your first love, who do you usually put first? Yourself. You usually put yourself first. And when the pressure was on and he needed to take care of Peter, because he had lost his first love, he put himself first. Not once, not twice, three times in a row. He put himself first. His own interest, his own safety, his own protection. He put himself first. It's glaring and obvious in that account what Peter did. But the problem is, sometimes it's not so glaring and it's not so obvious. In our lives today, there are choices we're making every day and opportunities to be speaking up for Jesus and opportunities to, to speak of our love for Jesus and how great Jesus is and opportunities to share Jesus with others. But sometimes in order to do that, it may put us at a disadvantage. It may not be 
accepted well by some people. It may not be something that advances what we want. It's really easy to stay quiet then. It's really easy not to be the witness then that God would want us to be. It's really easy to maintain what we think are relationships with people we consider friends and want to keep those intact when if we speak up, it may hurt those relationships in some way, so we just stay quiet. Or it may make things odd at work, or it may, it may be hard to speak up to a family member that, that you know doesn't agree with you on that, but, but you have an opportunity to speak up for Jesus. It's really easy to let our own interests become the number one thing instead of the love for Jesus being the number one thing. So before we say, well, I wouldn't do what Peter did, let's, let's be a little more honest about our own lives. Maybe we've already done that. Maybe we've already done it more than once. Maybe more than three times. We haven't been that person who stood up for our love for Jesus the way we should have. But I don't want to close with that because that would be that would be so defeating, right? Because I think all of us can say we've probably done that in some way at some time along the way. But the good news is after that happens, they, they take Jesus and they crucify him. But, but later on, we see another encounter after the resurrection where, where Jesus has an encounter with Peter that is so encouraging. Peter and some of the others, you remember what Peter did for a living before he became a, an apostle? What, what did he do? He's a fisherman. Him and his brother, brothers were fishermen. They had a fishing business. And after Jesus had died on the cross, Peter, it seems like, just thought, that's the end. We've lost all hope. What did he do? He went back fishing again. He went out on a boat on the lake again, fishing with some of his friends. And that day, as they were out fishing, they fished all night long, the scripture says, and they didn't catch anything. Not a thing. I don't know how many of you are fishermen, but that, you know, you can enjoy fishing some even without catching anything to a certain point. But if you're really out there to catch fish, especially if that's your business, if that's how you got to make a living, that, that's hard, right? To be out there all night and not catch anything. And then out on the beach, there's somebody saying, hey, guys, you catch anything? Got any fish? He said, not a thing. We've been fishing all night. We didn't catch anything. He says, well, Throw your nets out on the other side. They threw their nets out on the other side, and there was so many fish in the net, they couldn't even pull it in, and it reminded them of something. <laughs> this had happened before. When somebody had told them before to cast their nets out on the other side, and it was Jesus who had said that when they caught all those fish before. And now they hear that voice again, and there's something familiar about it. And to their surprise, it, it's Jesus there on the beach. He's there, and he's built a fire, and he's out on the beach calling for them to come. He says, come on in. Bring the fish. Let's have breakfast together on the beach. See, that's one reason I think the beach is better than the mountains. Jesus had breakfast with his disciples on the beach. It's got to be a better place, right? Now, I, I don't know about that. But I know that on the beach there, on the Sea of Galilee, that's where they were. And Jesus is there, and they, they bring in the fish. And Jesus cooks their breakfast for them, and they eat together. And Peter is welcome to sit there with Jesus and have breakfast with Jesus again. 
Remember what he had done after he denied Jesus that third time? It says he went out and wept bitterly. This had been eating at him. He had been grieving what he had done this whole time. And now he's got to be wondering as he sits there and Jesus is right there, risen from the dead, proving that he really is God in the flesh, proving that he conquered sin and the grave. He's, he's done everything he promised he would do. And Peter has to be wondering, can I be welcome here after what I've done? Could Jesus allow me to still have a relationship with him after I treated him the way that I've treated him? I heard a statement a long time ago in ministry that I love. Here's, here's what it said. It says, there's nothing you can do to make Jesus love you any more than he already does. And there's nothing you can do to make Jesus love you any less than he already does. His love for you is the same. Always. He loved you enough to die on the cross for you. Whether you messed up or you didn't mess up yesterday or today, whether you denied him today or not, his love doesn't change. And Peter's about to learn all about that love in this encounter. In John chapter 21, we have a record of it here. I love this. He says, you know, bring the fish you've caught. And we're having breakfast together here on the beach. And then in verse 15, it says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Friends, it's no coincidence at all that Jesus addresses Peter three times with this question, is it? Peter had grieved this whole time over denying Jesus how many times? Three times. And now Jesus gives Peter a chance to three times stand up for Jesus and say, I love you. You know I love you. You know all things, Jesus. You know I love you. And three times, you know what Jesus said? Feed my sheep. Why did Jesus say that? Why is that the response to Peter saying, yes, Lord, you know I love you? It's because that was saying to Peter, your past does not destroy your future. Your failures in the past don't have to determine what happens to you from here. The things that you've done wrong don't have to control the rest of your life now. You can still be restored in your love for me. My love for you is still here for you. It's always been here for you. And you can renew your love for me and you can move forward in serving me even with those things in your past. Because my love will forgive those things. Remove them from your record. You can be fully restored in your relationship with me right here, right now. I'm so glad he did that for Peter because Peter ended up being 
one of the greatest evangelists in the history of the world for the cause of Christ. Even after such great failure in his life. You see, that's the love God has for you and for me. I want to close with this. I think there are really three types of people listening to the message today. The first type is this. People who've never decided to to give their love and their life to Jesus. And here's what I want you to know. Whether you're listening online or in person, either way, here's the thing. Even if you have never, ever given yourself to Jesus, it has never changed his love for you. He still loves you so much that he died on the cross for you. And even today, even if you've rejected him your whole life, if you were to come to him today and renew a relationship with him or begin a new relationship with him, his love is here for you today, right now. You could take that step even today. There are others who may be hearing the message today who've been a believer for many years. But you've allowed other things to take the place of your first love. Outwardly, you're doing the right things. You may be attending church regularly, maybe in a life group, maybe doing daily devotions. But your love for Christ is not your first love. Even today, Jesus' love for you has always remained first. His highest priority is his love for you. And even today, should you come and renew and recommit and refresh your love for him and put him back into that place in your life where he is first, today he would welcome you into that deeper walk with him. And he will renew and refresh you because of that love you commit to him. Others listening today could say with Peter, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. You know what Jesus would say to us? if we could say that honestly today, that he is our first love. He wouldn't say, oh, I love you because you're doing so good. I love you because you get it right. You're doing everything right. That's not what he would say. You know what he would say? Feed my sheep. If you love me, and I believe you do, then here's how you do when you love someone. It becomes obvious. You live it out. You, you live a life that shows that love. You live out your love for Jesus by giving yourself in service to him, and service to him is always connected to serving others, always. So whichever category you're in today, the answer is the same. If you love Jesus, if you love him with the love that he has for you, it doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but it means you're going to make him the top priority of your life. And if you do mess up, you know his love doesn't change. You can come back to him again. You can find grace and mercy and forgiveness, and we all do mess up. But it doesn't ruin the rest of our lives because of the love of Jesus. We could still have fellowship with him through what he did for us on the cross. We could still be used by him in his service and bring glory and honor to his name, no matter what our past has been. His love is greater than any failure in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your provision for all of us. We thank you that we have the example of Peter, who was so passionate for you, and yet who still messed up. And yet in his 
grief over his failure and his sorrow for his sin, he found grace and mercy and restoration of relationship with you. And he, he had a powerful testimony of life when that relationship was restored. May we, Father, make sure that our relationship with you is our first love so that our testimony could be one that brings glory and honor to your name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you're here today and you need to make a decision for Christ, we want to give you that opportunity. We're going to stand and sing together. If you're listening online, you can comment in the chat feature there. If you want one of us pastors to follow up with you, we'll be happy to do that and help guide you in next steps that you might need to take. Let's all stand and sing together. Thank you. Have a seat for just a moment, please. You guys stand right up here with me. If you would, just tell everybody your names. Robin, Michelle. Robin and Michelle come today. They, they've been uh, part of our family for a while, a long time now. 
but they come today for a renewal, a recommitment of themselves to the Lord, uh, to his, to the relationship they want to have with Jesus. Uh, they want it to be new, renewed and refreshed today uh, as they recommit themselves to that. So just for our benefit and for your benefit as well before the Lord, I want you to repeat again a, repre- or a, uh, a profession of your faith and your trust in Jesus, if you would. I believe, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. And He is my Lord and my Savior. Amen. God bless you. Let's pray together with them right now. Amen. You can clap. Amen. <laughs> Father, we, we just thank you for these two who come today. Father, they love you. And they just want to be renewed, refreshed in their relationship with you through your son, Jesus. I pray today they would feel that, that promise, that truth that your love is here for them. And you gladly restore and renew that walk and that relationship. And you reinvigorate them with your spirit and your love to walk from this place refreshed and renewed in their love for you and their service to you and their witness for you to others. So I pray in Jesus' name, amen.